0: And I feel that a lot of people use some kind of art form, whether it's painting or music or writing or something to help draw themselves through nearly unlivable trauma.
1: Aaron Berkowitz back with the JLJ. And we have Jennifer Stile, the author of Exile Music, which won grand prize in the Island's 2020 Book Awards, the Multicultural International Book Award, and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Lesbian Fiction Award. Previous books include the novel The Ambassador's Wife and Memoir The Woman Who Fell from the Sky. Thanks for being with us tonight, Jennifer.
0: Thank you for, for inviting me and thank you for pronouncing my last name correctly. No one ever uh, does good. that. I
1: was worried, you know, <laughs> it can go either way. Um, I totally yeah. a stab. I'm glad that worked out, though. Um, the first question I have is just why this book and why now?
0: Well, I moved to Bolivia in 2012 because my husband was at the time employed by the EU. And he was uh, working in Bolivia as the head of delegation for the EU, which is what took our family there. Uh, we had, a, we still have a daughter, but she was almost three when we moved there. So while actually very early on in our days in La Paz, which is at around 12,000 feet, three and a half thousand meters, depending on how you're measuring. Um, my husband came home from work one day and he'd had a meeting with the honorary on, honorary Austrian consul. And he he came home and said, did you know that there were 20,000 Jewish refugees here in Bolivia during World War II? And I said, no, I mean, I've read about, I've read about a lot of the diaspora in other parts of South America and, brazil or argentina chile venezuela but i hadn't read anything about um the jewish community in la paz and la paz poses challenges that are above and beyond uh, many of the challenges in in the more developed countries it is at high altitude and that alone can be tricky and and uh was the least developed of of south american countries um, and still remains so i think Um, just in terms of technology and and making life easier. Um, So I thought, well, that's fascinating. And then a few weeks later, I met a man named John Galanter whose parents fled the Nazis in Austria. No, not Austria, Poland. Um, It was a part of Poland that then became part of Ukraine and then part of the USSR and then part of Ukraine again, I think. But his parents spoke Polish and they made it to Bolivia in 1940, I believe, and he was a violinist and the concert master of Bolivia's symphony orchestra. And he told me his family story, which was really interesting. And I'd been working on a different book, my previous book, and so I wasn't actively looking for something to write about. But I started looking around to see what else had been written about this population. And couldn't find anything. I found memoirs, a lot of which were written just for family um, to record their story. Um, I read every single memoir I could get my hands on Leo Spitzer. wrote a beautiful memoir called Hotel Bolivia. He grew up in La Paz till he was 10. And I thought, well, I don't I feel like there's more to this story. I I, I don't feel like enough tension has been drawn to this to this population and I didn't want to write I, I contemplated writing a nonfiction book, because my background is journalism and I could have reported it as a journalist and my first book was um, memoir or so nonfiction. Um, but the problem was that so many of the people who were alive back then are now dead and if I were trying to create narratives, I would have such gaping holes in the narrative because even the survivors I ended up interviewing couldn't remember certain periods of time. And I just thought I would be painting too sketchy of a portrait for readers to be able to get swept up in. And I and I thought I might be able to tell a almost a truer story by writing a historical work of fiction. Um, and so that sorry, that's a very long answer to your question. No,
1: it's, um, yeah. That's fine. Uh you were mentioning about sort of the small, I guess, the, I guess, and when we think of like the diaspora, it does sort of end up being mostly Europe and the United States, right? We think of uh, London, or we think of wherever in the United States or Canada, perhaps, but the South America, you know, we forget oftentimes of the South American communities, you know, a lot of Jews ended up in Shanghai, which, you know, it, it has its yeah. own uh, community. And it is sort of uh, Eurocentric, Western centric, um, when we think about those who uh, fled the Nazis, you know, the, sort of the Western developed world that we we often uh, get wrapped up in. So it is interesting to think that um, there are enclaves that are, are not really uh, talked about or studied in terms of what occurred after. It's also interesting that it took sort of a. a I don't. You know, I I, I can't imagine what brought the, up the conversation of twenty thousand Jewish refugees um, in a, in a conversation uh, that that led your husband speaking to you. You know, it's just sort of interesting how how the dominoes fell there
0: well my husband knows that i've always been really interested in jewish history and um i mean so he knew i'd be interested in this topic and he thought that it should be written about and so that's often why he tells me lots of stuff <laughs> he'll come home from work with all kinds of ideas and i i haven't used all of them because i don't have enough time um but he says he has a good eye for untold stories and i mean it's it was interesting because, you know, by 1938, there were only three countries still offering visas to Jews trying to flee the Nazis. So um, in those three countries, you know, the, the Dominican Republic, and as you mentioned, Shanghai, um, Japan occupied Shanghai, and uh, Bolivia, and not many people actually know that. I found in giving talks to to various groups, they don't really know much about why those countries, and they each have their own reasons, um, were still offering visas and so that was, that yeah. in itself is interesting, yeah.
1: Yeah, I know that uh, I work with uh, a large Dominican population uh, in my day job, and they they often do talk about how the Jewish immigrants in the 1940s, and some of them are old enough to, if not, have, maybe they were old enough or their parents were definitely old enough to uh, sort of see that migration, and, and, and they do talk about that. So it's interesting sort of the outside perspective, the outside of the Western, let's say, perspective um, that comes up. When you were going through the research, it is interesting you mentioned that you thought about nonfiction um you just sort like I'm not a journalist my background is not journalism but how do you how do you sort of go about taking those interviews do you start with one person and they introduce you to another do you do like what's the research process sort of like
0: I researched this book for five years over several countries so I started with the survivors um and yes one introduced me to another they're um you know, my friend john galanter was very useful, but he introduced me to a man named Guillermo. Um, His original name was Wilhelm Wiener. And he was born in Vienna, and left fled Vienna when he was eight years old. And he told me in detail about the ship crossing when he was eight years old. And he talked to me about how he learned Spanish, which was from his landlady's children. Um, And that's how my main character ends up learning Spanish um, as well. And So he gave me a lot of a lot of interesting details about what La Paz was like in the 1940s. He ended up owning several different cinemas and was the head of the Cinematographers Association in La Paz. And he Austria at one point invited him back and he said, never, never, never will I ever go back to Austria after what they've done to us. Um, And so he was one of my primary inspirations and research. So I interviewed him several times. Um, But then I also started thinking, You know, I had to decide what my characters did for a living before they were expelled. And so perhaps because my friend John is a violinist, I thought I want them to be musicians. Plus I always pick, I always wanna give my characters jobs that I wish I could do, but I can't because it allows me to live vicariously through them. So I made my the dad in my family uh played viol- they played viola with the Vienna Philharmonic and so that got me started researching the Vienna Philharmonic which has a horrific record of I mean they they expelled all their Jewish musicians as you you're nodding so you probably know part of this history and you know many of them died and others were you know sent into uh exile and they continued to employ nazis until 1967 which was not something i knew until i was researching them specifically and i don't think there's been enough written about this there has been there have been books written but mostly in german um and i became quite interested in the history of the philharmonic and i also became quite interested in preserving the names of those jewish musicians so I made sure they were all in my book because I wanted to memorialize them somehow. Um, and then the mother was a an opera singer. And so my protagonist, who's a young girl when the book starts, she's around 10, I think when the book starts, um, grows up in a musical family and is musical. And she has a, a best friend who's not Jewish. Um, and so as the Nazis grow closer and um anti-semitism is much more obvious every day you know that causes tensions not necessarily with her friend but with her friend's family um I seem to have yeah no it's interesting that
1: you were saying that um the music is not from you because I was going to ask I know your structure is around classical you know structure and um obviously your your characters are musicians in sense so I, I was curious as to sort of um the metaphor that you're trying to you know to me, music as voice and sort of uh, the construction of once you have the interviews and you're doing all the research, like how do you then constructing a, a overarching idea that melds it all together into one narrative does seem a little daunting.
0: Yes, although for me, things happen little by little. I don't, when I write my first drafts, it's I mean, I had to do, this was the most research heavy book I've ever written. I mean, all my books have required research, <laughs> um, but this one required the most. Uh, There's sometimes where I just had to stop in the middle of a chapter and, and then go do some research and then come back, um, which I found distressing is, because I wanted to keep in the flow of the writing and sometimes I just couldn't because I was missing, I had holes. Um, but with the music, I always knew that was really central to the book in that i find that at least for me um the way i cope with any sort of trauma is through writing and i feel that a lot of people use some kind of art form whether it's painting or music or writing or something to help draw themselves through nearly unlivable trauma and so i was thinking if you were a musician how would you use music to create a bridge from your old life in Austria and your new life in Bolivia? And the ways in which you use music to adapt to your, in the case of my refugees, to their new country says a lot about each of the characters. So, for example, the father, you know, is, of course, devastated to be expelled by the Vienna Philharmonic and everything. But by the time they get to Bolivia, and he has to make a living. He's teaching Bolivian musicians and starts to learn about Bolivian instruments that he didn't know much about before. And he finds a sense of freedom in being freed from the repertoire that he was playing in in the Vienna Philharmonic and learning new kinds of sounds. And so he, while he doesn't, become a Bolivian musician, he's still a a very much an Austrian musician, he comes to appreciate a different form of music and enjoys experimenting and playing with Bolivian musicians. Um, So uses it as a way to connect with people in his new place. Um, Orly, the daughter, she, she being the youngest and the most flexible eventually learns a Bolivian instrument and, and kind of makes it her own and the mother, who has left her son behind uh, in Europe, cannot cope with his loss. And because I think singing comes from a different place, maybe than other other kinds of music, because it's your body. And I feel that even if you're singing the saddest song in the world, you know you're singing a lament in an opera, there is joy in the act of singing even if you're singing something very sad. And she doesn't have enough joy left to sing. And so she stops singing entirely and therefore denies herself a way to relate to her new country and her new experiences and doesn't have an outlet. And she struggles the most in adapting to their new circumstances and causes her family a lot of trouble, but I don't wanna give too much away.
1: It's interesting to think of the voice as instrument. I, you know, if you talk to uh, trained singers, they they very much do try to separate, um, I guess, what most people think of as singing, right? That that it's and they they really do focus on themselves as instrumentation. So it mm-hmm. is interesting to see that uh, sort of uh, dichotomy being played out. Uh, you know how how we sort of use the body in in different ways. Are we inhabiting it? Are we using it? You know, and and how we sort of um, can see that in in the characters. I was curious as to the idea of uh, belonging that that come, that permeates the book. Um, it seems to me that there is an inherent tension, right? You're, the father is uh, attempting to learn uh, different instrumentation, but never really quite acclimates and, and appreciates it, but but from a distance where the mother is fully distant, and then obviously the daughter uh, is uh, acclimated to, to the country. In some ways, that's a function of age, but I'm just curious as to sort of... Um, perhaps a more approach to Jewishness in in a way, where Jews are seen as separate, uh, even if they belong to a country. So I was curious as to how that factored in uh, to the characterization.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point is so, you know, these Orly's father had had fought in World War One and thought of himself as Austrian. And then the Austrians told him he wasn't because he was Jewish. Um, And so he wasn't, you know, he eventually thought of as part of Austria, whereas he had always thought of himself as Austria, they were kind of at odds as to to who he was, and I'm really interested in that liminal space where you don't belong to one place or another, I, maybe because I live in it, I probably moved a dozen times over the past year, Um, but we move every three or four years anyway as a family, and I don't live in any in the country I was born in I haven't since 2006 and so. I don't know where my sense of belonging lies anymore it's kind of hard to find a mooring sometimes because you're always an outsider. Um, Which is how my characters were beginning to feel in, in Austria before they had to flee and even in i mean it was interesting when i interviewed people i interviewed some all kinds of people in bolivia and and some of the the non-jewish people who were alive at that time as well and the the two communities really did not mix um for the most part you know the refugees quite understandably for protectiveness and and um safety in numbers and with their own culture and language um tended to stick together although a lot of the kids um spoke fluent Spanish you know and were fully integrated like Guillermo Guillermo considered himself utterly Bolivian he was Bolivian till his last breath he was he made that decision and kind of listening to him talk about you know unbecoming Austrian and becoming Bolivian made me think about what what my characters might decide where would they decide they belonged I mean that that's one of the decisions Orly has to make does she belong in Europe is she still Austrian in some way or or is she more Bolivian now having now spent the majority of her life there um and raised a child there so sorry I don't want to give an I just gave something away but it's not a major plot point
1: that's um a, I, I was curious as to why you picked the younger protagonist I mean it seems like you could have use one of the parents. Um, So I was curious as to how you got to, you know, a 10 year old narrator. Um,
0: Right. Um, I think that's largely Guillermo that, that, that made me want to, oh, actually I've got two, two, two reasons for that. So Guillermo was talking about his experiences being eight and how easy it was for him to learn Spanish and how completely integrated he felt with the Bolivians. And I mean, he, he just had nothing but wonderful things to say about his, upbringing in Bolivia. And, um, and I figured that, you know, when you're that young, and having seen my daughter move from country to country, I mean, kids just pick up languages like little sponges. And I wanted a character who would be capable of picking up everything um, and adapting so that the choice would be genuine so that she would you know she'd be fluent in spanish and but what did that mean she was bolivian or not you know did it just mean she was an austrian who was fluent in spanish um but i wanted someone who would be better able to adapt and then she she's a bit of a guide for her parents like a lot of of immigrants have you know this experience like the kids learn english faster in the u.s for example and then help their parents who perhaps haven't learned it as fast and i experienced this because in bolivia i was very studiously conjugating verbs and my little three-year-old was just running around speaking Spanish and it was really maddening <laughs> um so uh so that's one reason for for having a child and I knew she was going to grow I mean she's in her 40s by the end of the book um but I wanted to kind of show kind of the because someone young who could grow up and be a little more open to the world than the parents were. I mean, the mother is not open to Bolivia, and we wouldn't get to explore very much of the country if we stayed with her. You know, we'd just be stuck in the house, like, cooking. Um, And the dad is kind of boring in his own way. I mean, it's not boring to him, but he is playing music all the time. Orly actually explores. Um, She goes out. She sees the country. She sees the country with fresher eyes, than her parents are capable of seeing the country. And also, she's not as contaminated, for lack of a better word, with thoughts about all the difficulties, You know, the legal difficulties, the money difficulties, and all that stuff, and she can just see the country. I haven't actually thought about that before, but that's part of it. Um, And the other thing is, when my daughter was three or four in Bolivia, she asked me one morning, she said, where did I live before Bolivia? And I said, you lived in London. And she she said, before that, and I said, Jordan. She said, before that, and I said, Yemen. And she said before that and i said you lived in my tummy and she said well no 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 where did i live before i lived in your tummy and i said well nowhere you didn't exist and this was not acceptable you know she said i i existed i existed in a land called bunny belts and there's a queen bunny and there's also a president and um I guess it was parliamentary democracy of some kind or with a queen, but anyway, it would you know everyone was vegetarian and she made up this whole land and as she was telling you know she spent seven years developing this land, you know it had visa requirements, which I did not meet, so I could never go there. Um, We had visitors from bunny belts we. Um, We learned about its neighbors and that, you know, its cars were these little carrot mobiles that were powered by Japanese fans. And so it was really this detailed world. And I thought, and because I was thinking about who would be my protagonist for this book, and I thought if I were a child in Austria in the 1930s, when the world is growing more frightening every single day, I would need an imaginary world. Um, And I pictured my protagonist creating this imaginary world, but it wasn't wouldn't be very interesting if we were just watching her play alone. Um it was far more interesting if she was creating this world with a friend. And that's where the entire book started was with one scene between Orly and her best friend Annalisa. It started with bunny belts. <laughs> um it's not what it's called in the book, but um I did steal my daughter's idea and she doesn't let me do that anymore, which is you know annoying.
1: Yeah, uh, there's something about you know talking. I remember I, I primarily teach uh, immigrant students uh, English, and ooh. there's a, there's a nice way that they phrase things sometimes where you you pick up, you know, it's the same way you steal you'll steal a phrase you'll you'll borrow a, a way that they they learn right. English because there is it helps you reexamine the language. Whereas and similarly, I would think to like how a child would reexamine a world that you sort of you encounter, um, but they they see it very very differently.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Orly sees things, sees things her parents don't see, and instinctively, is it's easier for her to grasp things that her parents don't quite. Um, I mean, in a way, they're still living in a little bit. They're 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 less integrated than she is. Um, her best friends are all, for the most part, except for Rachel. Um, for the most part, her friends are Bolivian. Well, one significant friend, anyway. Yeah. From um,
1: coming back to the that writing process, uh, you're mentioning sometimes that the flow would be interrupted by a uh, necessity to research, but I'm also curious, obviously you, you move around a lot. There seems to be a lot going on. Do you have like a, a daily practice or is, is it sort of an inspiration-based thing or or how do you think of that habit of writing?
0: Um, I write almost every day. I need to. I It's a compulsion as much as it is anything else. And it's also... Um, it's how I process the world, I suppose. So no matter what's going on in my life, that's kind of the only consistency. I mean, maybe that's where home is for me. Um, some days I I don't write anything more than a journal. Um, I don't always get to whatever project I'm working on. I mean, this past year, I've been in cancer treatment for the whole last year and my first thought on diagnosis was i do not want to write a cancer memoir that is not what i want to write about um and yet you know i just sold an essay on on my experience in the hospital here to uh the kenyan review in, in the u.s I, I i i just couldn't help but process cancer by writing even though i didn't want to um and so um Yeah, so I have a really regular, I mean, if you wait for inspiration, you'll never get to the desk. I mean, I never wanna sit down in a chair. I'm a really hyperactive person. So sitting is not my natural thing. (laughs) Um, So getting to the chair is is always hard for me. So it has to become non-optional. I mean, yeah, there's days if there's too many medical appointments or if I'm in the middle of chemo, then yeah, I don't always, that slowed me down quite a bit. But now that I'm finally feeling better, I, you know, I can't stop writing. It's just, I have so many ideas because um, all these interesting things happen, have happened over the past year. And I've lived in so many weird communities in London and different neighborhoods. And as I move around during treatment, um, but yeah, oh,
1: you're feeling better. Uh, the yeah. Things are- well, um, yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, it's, it's always, I always ask every writer that question, like, you know, do you, is it 20 minutes a day? Is it the, uh, you know, what is it? How does, how does it sort of work through? Um, especially those who've written multiple novels, you know, at, at some point, I think a lot about rep, rep, repeating oneself, you know, how many, how many original ideas does one have? I don't know, I guess that's maybe not a concern. If you keep writing at some point, you you strike something new.
0: Yes. I mean, I think all three of my published books are very different from each other. I mean, the first one's a memoir, for one. And it's a it's about writing a newspaper in Yemen, which is about as far from exile music as you can possibly get. Um, they're just completely different books. Um, and then the no, my first novel, The Ambassador's Wife, is also set in a country much like Yemen and starts off with a kidnapping. And the kidnapping itself was based on my own experience. Um, but the rest of the book is fiction. And so that's, but it's more kind of literary thriller-ish and Exile Music is historical fiction. And I've written another book now um, that also takes place in Bolivia, but is about an underground community. Um, And I'm halfway through an Uzbekistan book, which is entirely different. Um, um, And has some new themes for me. So, I mean, that is the thing when you're traveling all the time in a kind of, in constant you're constantly brushing up against newness and difference. And those always trigger thoughts for me. And even if it's reflecting on me and and the way I respond and the things I, I realize, like how much the US shaped my thinking that I didn't even realize until I left the country. Um things like that.
1: Yeah. It is interesting to you know how context will affect a uh, product. I mean, I, I, maybe that's not interesting. Maybe that's like the most basic effects. I'm not sure. Um,
0: I mean, you can be a bad travel writer. I mean, I don't really want to, you know, I don't, I find kind of interesting parts of these countries that I think really specific stories. That I, I feel, I do feel compelled to tell them. The stories that I've written are things I feel like I had to, I don't want to claim to have shed light on them, but but uh, draw people's attention that direct, that way. You know, like Exxon music felt really important to me. And, and when I spoke to, I spoke to the um, community of third generation survivors um, in DC and one of whom is the daughter of my friend, John. And she said, I'm so relieved that you wrote this book because our story has never been told and I didn't want to write it. <laughs> um and you know it's been really great to hear from i hear from so many almost all my emails from readers have been from survivors uh most of whom had passed through bolivia at some point and wrote to me and said you know this book is so close to my own experience who did you talk to like how did you know this um five years of research
1: yeah um yeah yeah it makes i mean I think that the the specificity is what allows people to connect right that the actually the more specific you can be the easier it is to relate um, paradoxically, perhaps. Um, but that is a nice segue as, as we sort of wrap up about shedding light where where can people find the book where can people find you if they want to keep up.
0: You can find the book uh, pretty much anywhere books are sold so any any place online so bookshop.org um, if you want to support independent bookstores or your local independent bookstore or. Amazon, of course. Um, uh, so, anywhere books are sold. Um, you can also go to my website, jenniferstyle.net, and that has some links to buy my books. It's so Jennifer is J E N N I F E R S T E I L dot net. Um, and I'm also on social media. So, you can just search for my name and Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um,
1: Perfect. Uh, well, I just yeah. want to thank you so much for taking time out uh, to come speak with me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, and and thank you for shedding light on on this community. I, I do think it's important to uh, get a broader picture of, of the Jewish community in that way.
0: No, it's a pleasure. Um, so thank you for asking me.
1: Thank you for joining me in this episode of Exegesis. If you enjoyed what you heard, please feel free to rate, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also support the JLJ on Patreon or PayPal with the links provided in the show notes. See you next time.